0: Applicable to all of us. And as we jump in, I really want to explain a few things about the Old Testament priesthood. So I hope you'll follow me with this just to lay some foundation, some framework, so that everything else tonight will make sense. In the Old Testament, um, the priests had a very specific function and they had a very specific purpose. Today, maybe one thing, one way that I could relate it to you. Um, Today, if you had to go to court and stand before a judge, I would hope that you would um, look for an advocate, right? Um, It'd be fairly foolish to try to jump into the legal system without someone to represent you on your behalf as you stand before a judge. I don't know any attorneys that would, uh, that would uh, recommend that you go and you try to wing it and you try to just make your way through based on reason and common sense. Okay, um, It's probably not going to get you very far through the legal system. You want someone who understands the legal system, is able to stand before a judge on your behalf. In many ways, similarly, as we look to Christ, as we look to the priesthood, the priests were those who would go before God on behalf of the people. In the Old Testament, we have a few different offices. You have the prophet, the priest, the kings. Um, The priests and the prophets were different. And often the prophets would go to man with a message from God. The priests would go to God on behalf of men. And so that's the primary function. It's very basic, very uh, maybe oversimplified, but the general role of the prophets. And even the high priest's garments speak to his office. You see, the high priest would take and he would wear um, above his tunic and a robe and um, some other ornaments. He would take and he would put on what's called um, the ephod. And this is kind of an apron-like garment, Um, but on this ephod, on the shoulders, there would be large onyx stones that were set in gold. And in these onyx would be carved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on top of that ephod, um, especially covering the front, the breastplate that he would wear, would have 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the significance here is that He would be going in before God to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation, and he would bear the weight on his shoulders of the people of Israel, and he would bear over his heart on the breastplate the names of the tribes of Israel, representing the peoples of Israel. And so as he would go into the Holy of Holies and offer this sacrifice and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, he would be wearing this garment. Additionally, he'd have a uh, headpiece, that would have a gold plaque across it that says, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord, a reminder of the office, a reminder of the seriousness of the responsibilities of the high priest. And so as the high priest um, would go in here, understand this, the high priest was not a fulfillment of the law. The high priest was what we could call shadow, whereas Jesus is substance. Shadow and substance. How many of you guys have you ever um, done a shadow puppet show? Or something you've played with, some kind of, you had a flashlight or some kind of light source, right, and you put your hand on the other side and you make you know, a dog or you know, a bird or whatever. Those are literally dog, bird, rabbit. That's the three I can do, okay? All right, I lied. Bird and rabbit, that's all I got, all right? Uh, but what happens when you, do the, uh, when you do that? Can you touch the shadow that you're creating? Are you able to interact with that? No, there's nothing actually there, right? Uh, The detail is lost. Um, It's it's not something that actually is in uh, in the flesh. It's not something that actually is, is there in substance. But what is it indicating? It's indicating that there is something else that's very real, isn't it? If, so, if we were to do that tonight, right, uh, and you saw a, a shadow on the wall, you would assume that there's something creating that shadow, right? There's something that that shadow is pointing towards. Uh, one of the ways that we can look at the Old Testament is we can look at it as shadow to Jesus and to the New Testament's substance. And so here as we look at the priesthood, the priesthood is a good thing. The priesthood is a valuable thing. The Old Testament priesthood was a good thing. The Old Testament law, a good thing. But they're not the thing. Instead, Jesus is the thing. The Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, points us and directs us to him. And so that brings us here to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to try to move quickly to now we have a lot of things to cover. and I want to get us out uh, on time and a normal time. And so we want to get right in here to Hebrews chapter number five. And as we dig in today, I'm going to show you three ways that Jesus is a better high priest. Three ways that Jesus is a better high priest. Number one, before we uh, get too far, I'll just introduce it this way and I'll kind of explain it as we go. But the first way is his priesthood is without equal. His priesthood is without equal. And in fact, we're actually going to look at three things that Jesus' priesthood does not have. And the first of those, there's no one that's able to rival the priesthood of Christ. And understand why this is important to us. Because Jesus' priesthood is without equal, he can succeed where others have failed. He can succeed where others have fallen short. So the author here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, we're going to jump right into the text here. The author is kind of laying out the qualifications for the priesthood. So I want you to have an understanding of what we're going into. These are things that the priesthood must be and must contain. And so he's making the argument that Jesus is a better high priest through these things. Look at verse number one. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. So remember what we'd said before. The priest goes to God on behalf of men. That's what we're seeing here in this verse. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for men sins. And so this is the first qualification of the priesthood. It's called by men as an advocate, as an advocate. And how would the priest be that advocate? Through gifts and sacrifices. So Jesus is a better priest, though, is what he's arguing, what he's going into here, is that Jesus is a better priest because he has a better sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice of lambs and the sacrifice of goats could only cover sin, Whereas the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of his own body, his own flesh on the cross, is a perfect sacrifice. One that doesn't need to be administered over and over and over again. We're going to see that as a theme throughout these passages. And so we see that here, Jesus is a better sacrifice. When we talk about the purpose of the priesthood, understand that the reason the priesthood is even necessary in the first place is because of our sin. It's because of our sin. Adam and Eve, did they have a priest? You want to skim through? We can can skim through Genesis 1 through 3, right? You're not going to find it. There's no priest. Who do they speak to directly? They speak to God directly. There's no need for a mediator because there's no sin. There's no sin to be mediated. They were at peace with God. But all of a sudden, what do we see when they sin? When they sin, they realize their nakedness. And then from there, what do they do? Does anyone remember the story? They cover themselves up. They go take leaves and begin to make garments to cover themselves with these leaves because they're ashamed, because they have guilt, because they understand their vulnerability. And this is still kind of what's going on here, especially the Old Testament priesthood, but even still today, the priesthood of Christ, is that we are incapable of coming before God by ourselves. Your shame, your sin, your guilt keeps you separated from God, keeps me separated from God. We carry this sin. We bear the weight of this sin sin. And as we even push deeper into this, uh, this is often the reason that people have problems with with identity, with validation. Why? Because we understand how wicked and sinful and insufficient we are, don't we? When we're really honest, when we take a step back, when we release all of the coverings, the fig leaves that we've sewn together to cover ourselves with, we have to admit that we're not worthy of this. We see our shortcomings. We see our brokenness. We see our sinfulness. When we're honest with ourselves, when we remove our pride, we we understand that we're wicked people. But for the grace of God, the sin that exists in any human heart also lives in us. And so we struggle because we don't want other people to see us that way, do we? We don't even want to believe this to be true about ourselves, and so instead, what do we begin to do? We begin to piece together an identity. We begin to show other people the positives while we hide the negatives. We keep the negatives to ourselves. We begin to put on the face. We begin to wear the mask. And we like to play pretend and play dress up because everyone else can see us this way. But if they knew who I really was underneath the surface, oh, man. And all of a sudden, we condemn ourselves. Our hearts condemn us. But thankfully, if our heart condemns us, there's one that's greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. John records in the book of 1 John. And understand that what we do, when we can't get rid of our guilt, we can't get rid of our shame, we grab whatever we can to try to cover it up. We grab whatever we can to try to cover it up. There's a recent um, recent event. Um, I'm big sports fans. We have anyone else, that NBA fans, you follow basketball at all? All right, a couple, couple people in here. All right, so like two of you will know this is going on. The rest of you can be surprised. All right, so... Um, no, there's a basketball player by the name of Jeremy Lin. Has anyone seen that name in the last week, last few days? Taylor has, Zach has, a couple of us have. Um, so Jeremy Lin, is a, he's, a, he's got a great reputation, great testimony as a Christian athlete. Um, but about eight years ago... Um, He's undrafted Harvard graduate. About eight years ago, uh, as he was playing for the New York Knicks, he started his first game in the NBA. He had worked his way up through developmental leagues and uh, rode the bench for a little while, and now he's starting his first game for the New York Knicks. And he goes out and he scores 25 points, uh, which NBA, there's no one in this room that's scoring 25 points on any given night, no matter, I mean, none of us are doing that, okay? Really great athletic feat, first night that he's starting an NBA game. For the next two weeks, he's on everything, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, he's on uh, Today Shows and all kinds of different news outlets because uh, all of a sudden, the city of New York and really the United States, all the sports fans are just sucked into what they would call sanity. And for that year, his jersey was the second most selling jersey in the National Basketball Association, Jeremy Lin. Well, after those two weeks, he kind of came back to earth. Um, for the season, he averaged about 12 points, which is respectable. Um, but for the next eight years, um, his playing time, his minutes went down. Um, this last year, he was a member of the team that won the NBA championship, the Toronto Raptors. He played all of, I believe it to be, 53 seconds during the uh, during the series. 53 seconds over six games. All of a sudden, Jeremy Lin is a footnote. He's not in the center of anyone's attention. Um, after the series, the Raptors actually did not re-sign Jeremy Lin. And so he's now a free agent, um, and he's not signed with any teams. He was speaking this last week at a church in Taiwan, um, and he was sharing some of his testimony, sharing some of his story with him. And he said this, he said this. He said, rock bottom seems to be getting more and more rock bottom for me. I feel like in some ways the NBA has kind of given up on me. Understand, this is a guy, he's around 30 years old, He's made over $50 million playing basketball. He has played professionally. He's been on the cover of magazines. He has all of these things going on, all of these things that you and I, if someone just handed us that much money, then uh, we'd say, hey, awesome. How does this guy have a right to be sad or to be upset? It, understand this. For the last 10 years of Jeremy Lynn's life, what has he been? He's been a basketball player. Now all of a sudden, what is he not? He's not a basketball player. His identity is missing. No one wants him to play basketball anymore. He's been in the NBA. That's what he tells people. That's his claim to fame. It's all these things, but that's not who he is anymore. He's having an identity crisis. If we're honest, all of us, we're susceptible to these things too, aren't we? All of a sudden, this thing gets taken away from us, and that's where our identity was. Whether it be a spouse and a marriage falls apart or a spouse passes away, a child that we lose, a job that uh, goes away or that isn't what it used to be. All of a sudden, our, our lives change. We have these crisis uh, in this moment because the thing that we saw ourselves as is no longer true. It's no longer whole. And we find ourselves at this intersection between what we want to be true and what can't be true anymore. And that's those are the kind of things that go on when we are trying to cover, merely cover, our guilt, our sin, and our shame. We're trying to gloss over them with some form of identity with this is who I want to be. It's kind of like, like this. It's kind of like if I were to tell my kids, maybe you were some of those kids, maybe you had kids like this. You were never those kids. Your kids are like this. Um, you tell your kids to clean their room, right? And then you go in there a few minutes later and all the toys are off the floor and where are they? They're under the bed. Or they're in the closet, right? All of a sudden you move the rug and there's like old band aids stuck to the floor and you're like, ah, what is going on in here? Did they clean their room? I mean, all right, so we know who was like that. All right. The room is, what did they do? They reorganized the mess. Nothing's cleaned, it's just shoved somewhere else. The fact is in life, when we try to behave this way, when we try to just shove it into corners, you know what happens? Crisis always come about. A crisis always comes. And then all of a sudden, we're forced to look the mess in the face, and we don't like what we see. All of a sudden, we're forced to be made vulnerable. It's like when mom and dad would come in and they would pull the bed out from the wall, open the closet door, get buried in a pile of toys, right? All of a sudden, now all these things are out in the open and now I have to deal with them. I can't keep hiding them. I can't keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. This is why we need a high priest. This is why we need a high priest, not just a human high priest. We need a better high priest. One who's not able only to cover our sins, but to erase them, to wash them away. Understand this: You will never, you will never feel fulfilled outside of Christ. You will never feel fulfilled outside of Christ. Maybe for a minute, maybe for a minute, you can convince yourself into feeling good. Maybe for a, uh, for a month or for a year or for a few years, you can convince yourself everything's okay. But long term, you will never be fulfilled outside of Christ. Every other identity, it can be taken away. Everything else that exists, our wealth. Look at the Great Depression, right? There are people that the stock market crashes. They're throwing themselves from buildings because what they've spent their entire lives working for are gone. It's difficult to lose those things. It's difficult to see our identity vanish away. But when your identity is found in Christ, it's never going to leave. That can't be removed from you. That's an identity that never fails. It never goes away. And so it's important for us to understand that Jesus is the one that fills this hole in our hearts. Look at verse number two. We're going to keep going here. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. Does anyone see a problem here in verse number three? Let's read this one more time. All right. By reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Does anyone see a problem with what's going on here? This old high priest, these old priests, they have to offer sacrifices for them. They can't just go in and be like, all right, guys, here, I've got you. I'm going to offer the sacrifice on your behalf. No, they need a sacrifice themselves. The second um, necessity uh, or qualification of the priesthood is this. It's compassion. You look at verse number two, and it says that they have compassion on the ignorant out of the way. This is also speaking of Jesus and his ability to have compassion. But understand that a priest can give sympathy, but a priest can't give salvation. A priest can give sympathy, but they can't give salvation. They can say, hey, you know what? I feel the way that you feel. If you were to come talk to me, and I'm not a priest in this sense of the word, um, but if you were to come talk to me, then I could say, wow, that's a hard situation you're going through, and I could sympathize with you. Maybe I've even walked through something similar. But you know what I can't do is I can't save you from it. I can't bring you out of it. But sometimes, if we're not careful, this can be the kind of priest that we want. Where we don't desire a priest that's able to solve the problems, we just want a priest that's sympathetic. We don't want to go to a solution. We don't want to go to God's word for the solution. We just want someone to nod and say, oh, that, that really stinks. And there's a place for sympathy. This reminds me of, um, this reminds me of a, a skit that I saw. I thought it was, I thought it was really clever. Um, and there's a, a, a woman that um, starts with a very close, tight shot of a woman's face. And she's, you can tell she's uh, just visibly frustrated and working through some things. And she, she says... These headaches just won't go away. I can't think clearly. Uh, It's ruining my wardrobe. My sweaters are all snagging. I just, I don't know what to do. And she turns her head. She has about a four-inch nail sticking out of her forehead. And her husband, it seems to be her husband, sitting on the couch with her. And he says, honey, I think if we just got rid of the nail, then she says, Stop it's not about the nail. It's not about the nail. She doesn't want someone to solve her problems. She wants someone to sympathize with her problems. Understand this. Jesus does both. Jesus can do both. See, Jesus, here we see in verse number two, he can have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way, for that he himself is compassed with infirmity. Understand, this doesn't even say iniquity. It says infirmity, weakness. Jesus was a victim of weakness, right? Not in that he was limited, but he allowed himself. He allowed himself to be nailed on that cross, didn't he? He limited himself. He didn't deserve those things. Surely as the son of God. He could have called 10,000 angels, etc. We know these things, but what did he do? He said, nevertheless. He said, I'll take this. I'll drink of this cup. I'll submit myself to this thing. So he understood these things. So the second qualification of the priesthood is compassion. And Jesus has a better compassion because his compassion is not limited to sympathy, but his compassion is able to help save. Look at verse number four. We need to pick up our pace a little bit. Verse four, no man takes this honor unto himself. He is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said to him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. The, the third qualification for the priesthood listed here is that not self-serving. They don't appoint themselves to this office, but they're called. They're called to this office. The office of a priest was a called office. Not someone where someone could say, you know what, I would like to be the next. No, this was a calling that was placed on them. But what does it say about Jesus? Christ glorified not himself, verse 5, to made a high priest. He that said to him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. He's not self-serving, but he's called. And in fact, he has a better calling. Which of the high priests did he look at and call son? Which of the high priests did he look at and say, today have I begotten thee? No, Jesus has a better calling than these high priests. Then really, what the author does? He summarizes these things here in verse, starting verse number six. As he has said also in another place, "Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Remember this name. We're going to talk about this. All right. He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I tried to name one of our sons Melchizedek, and he wouldn't let me. Who, in the days of his flesh, it's a good name. All right. Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death was heard in that he feared. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's summarizing a lot of these things. There's a lot going on in these verses that for the sake of time, we're not going to camp out in. But really what we're going to do is we're going to catch Melchizedek. um, We'll call it on the other side. And you say, what are you talking about? Chapter number 7. So I know we're in chapter 5, and we're going to chapter number 7, okay? It's on purpose, I promise. I did not forget chapter 6. In fact, um, chapter 6, I love, I love chapters, the end of chapter 5 and chapter number 6. Um, Hebrews is written, uh, it, it, most people think that it was probably a sermon, either a, a written sermon, like a manuscript, um, or a sermon that was preached verbally. And one of the reasons that they think that is throughout the book of Hebrews, there are five times where the author is going in one direction and says, you know what, for just one second, and he stops and he gives us what are called the five warnings through Hebrews. That's a series in and of itself, okay? Um, but he stops and he gives a warning about certain behaviors that he's seeing in this church. And so what he does is at the end of uh, chapter five, you can actually see it in verse 11 where he starts this, of whom we have many things, talking about Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. Seeing your doll of hearing, isn't that great? It's also very compassionate right here as well. Um, he's not a priest, thankfully, the author here. Um, so what is he saying? He's saying, "Hey, I wouldn't have to say all this if you had been paying attention the whole time." And then he launches in like a 15 verse, you know, siloquy of why he wouldn't have to repeat himself if you had been paying attention this whole time. So uh, as someone who communicates and teaches, um, I appreciate this because his mind, it's almost like his mind wanders. It's inspired by God and it's there for a purpose, um, but it's almost like he's like, time out for one second, address this thing. All right, where were we? If you look at the last verse of chapter six, he's like, oh yeah, Melchizedek, chapter seven. And so we're going to skip the, uh, that, that piece right there. You can go study it for yourself sometimes, um, but let's, we're going jump to jump to chapter seven here. And we're going to take a pause for just a minute. We're going to catch the last two points of the message towards the end of chapter 7. But I want to walk through, and I want to lay a little bit of a foundation for you. Okay? Um, Now, uh, most of us in here are not Jewish. All right? Most of us in here do not grow up Jewish. So if you're a little bit... Unfamiliar with Melchizedek, it's a very different thing. As he's writing this, he's like, you grew up with this, you were in synagogue every day until you were 15, and how do you not know who Melchizedek? That's a little bit different, all right, than you and I sitting here today. And so I want to give you a background of Melchizedek so you can have a full understanding of the things that he's gonna say. Because they're equally deep and equally true as the things that he spoke about and he wrote about, this author did in chapter number five. So who is Melchizedek? Why does he matter? Great question. Great question. Verse number one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And this is is an incredible story, all that's going on here. And he's like encapsulating it in this verse. I'll tell you the story very briefly, Cliff Notes version. So Sodom and Gomorrah, very wicked cities. Abraham is living in proximity to them, but not close to. So he's in the same region. His nephew, Lot, actually gets sucked into these cities. He begins to participate in a lot of this wickedness. He makes his home in these cities. In fact, um, he's a uh, one time recorder sitting at the gates of these cities, which is talking about a position of influence. And so Lot here is a part of these cities. And then there's this war that breaks out between nine kings. So you have four kings on one side, five on the other that come together. They battle. And in the middle of all of this, Sodom and Gomorrah fall, and Lot is taken as captive out of these cities. Well, word comes to Abraham. Abraham says, God invites might pursue them. He arms his servants, and in the middle of the night, they raid this uh, war party. They get victory through the power of God, and he brings Lot back and brings the spoils back. In the middle of all of this, so after he's just defeated um, these kings, after he's just shown his greatness, after he's just gone out here and accomplished this awesome work through the power of God, what does he do? He comes and he runs into, by chance, this man that we know as Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, as he comes to him, he's told in Genesis 14, is where you can read about this, uh, it's said that he is a high priest of God. He's a priest of God. All right? A priest of the Most High God, is the phrase that's used. And so as he comes and Abraham sees Melchizedek, he perceives who he is, and what does he do? He tithes, he gives a tenth of all of these spoils to God through this priest, Melchizedek. And then um, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which is what you read about just very quickly here in verse number one. All right, now we're up to speed. Verse two, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being interpreted, watch this, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem which is king of peace. So the author is actually breaking down these, these words that make up uh, his name. So the name Melchizedek, remember I said it was a cool name, I said it was a good name. The name Melchizedek means this. Melchi is a title actually. It means king, king. Zedek means, as is uh, illuminated here, righteousness. So Melchizedek's name literally means the king of righteousness. And then his title is the king of Salem or the king of Peace, Salem meaning peace. Does that remind you of anyone? The king of peace and righteousness? Melchizedek is this beautiful type of Jesus. Melchizedek points us, shadow substance, points us to Christ. But the similarities don't end there. This is fantastic. I love this. So he's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, he's a priest of the most high God. What is this whole chapter about? Jesus is a better priest, right? So there another correlation. Watch verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. So for Melchizedek, um, what, what this is kind of uh, meaning here, what he's explaining, he's saying, uh, Melchizedek, we don't know anything about this mystery man. We know nothing else about him. We know what we read in Genesis 14. So we don't know his beginning. We don't know his end. We don't know his father's name, his mother's name. We don't know if he had any kids, what his kids' name. We don't know any of these things about Melchizedek. And so in Melchizedek, they are unknown for Jesus. For Jesus' beginning and end, they don't exist. So similarly here, we see this a shadow of Jesus, where we don't have a record of Melchizedek's birth or his death. Jesus, they aren't there. Even his death was a temporary, right? Only lasted a few days. There's no beginning, no end. Also not mentioned here. This is fantastic. Genesis 14. When Melchizedek comes, he comes bearing um, something for Abraham. Um, He comes with gifts for Abraham as well. So Abraham comes, tithes to him. Melchizedek gives he and his men bread and wine. Does that have any similarities? Does that do anything in your mind? What do we partake of? What do we partake of um, when, we, when we have communion, the Lord's table, when we remember the death of Christ? What do we use for that? We use the cup and the bread, right? We use the bread and the juice. As we hear Melchizedek, even, in this, in this uncanny foreshadowing, like you can't make this stuff up, right? He comes with these gifts of bread and, uh, and wine for Abraham and gives him these things to partake of. This Melchizedek is this beautiful picture of Jesus. Now let's keep going. He's going to make some things here. We're going to read a few verses. I'm going to just throw a little bit of commentary in, and we're going to get to the end of this chapter so we can wrap up on time. I'd encourage you. um, We're jumping through a lot of this because we're trying to cover a lot of ground. I want to make this applicable to you. Um, and so the things, when we look at Jesus' priesthood, I want to take these things, I want to make them such that you can walk out of here and you can say, this is how Melchizedek applies to my life, all right? Uh, so follow me, all right? Follow me, we're going we're gonna to make this happen. And so we've already looked at one way that Jesus is a better high priest, right? Uh, he has no equal. He has no equal. The, the things in our lives that we try to build up, that we try to use to cover and go to God or to make us valuable um, on our behalf, Jesus supersedes all of these. They can't even touch him. Any good thing that you see is shadow Jesus' substance, okay? But continue here, verse number four, as we, as we try to lay this foundation of what he's speaking of. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. All right, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. It's an impressive guy. Verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, Old Testament priests being Levites, Receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So summary here. Melchizedek is better than Abraham. He's superior to Abraham because two reasons. He took tithes of Abraham. He received tithes of him and because he blessed Abraham. So his argument here is the one that does the blessing is better than the one is superior to is a greater man than the one who was blessed. And understand that if you're, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, Father Abraham. Oh, Abraham. Abraham's, Abraham's the man. Like It's like God the Father, Abraham... Moses, right? I mean, like, it's like Abraham, Father Abraham, he was Moses' father, so uh, therefore he's greater than, so if you're saying that he's better than Abraham, you better have a good reason for saying this, because this, also, this guy's not even Jewish, so what are you doing here, okay? So understand that when the author is saying this, he's making a very strong statement. Verse 8, here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it's witness that he liveth. As I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what is he saying? He's saying Levi, the one who receives tithes under the law, wasn't even born yet. So in his father Abraham, he paid tithes too. Therefore, verse 11, perfection. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? And this is a statement, you guys have heard that, you've heard that statement a few times now, right? After the order of Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, is he just making this up? Like, where is this coming from? Is he just seeing what he wants to see? David wrote in the Psalms, and David said, David said this as a prophecy. He said that, he's, this this exact statement, You've called him, eventually foreshadowing Christ, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here, what is this author doing? He's saying, hey, Melchizedek, this shadow, David prophesied would one day be substance. Here he is. And so he's taking it and he's connecting the law to David in the Psalms to now Christ who has fulfilled these things. And so that's where this statement is. He says, so he's saying, he's saying this, he's saying, if David said that there was going to have to be a priest coming from a different order, then how could the first, how could the Levitical order be perfect? How could the law be perfect if he said someone was going to come from a different priesthood that's outside the law? So David, in fact, the idea of the law being insufficient is not new, it's not unique to the New Testament. Even in the Old Testament, when you look at it, when you find these things, you see the Old Testament, the prophets knew that the law was never going to be enough. The authors of the Old Testament, the ones who were inspired by God, they understood the law was never going to be enough. It was never going to be sufficient to save. The Pharisees thought it would be. These others that took it and they ran with it, um, these ones that practiced what we could call legalism, they thought the law, the law is going to bring us to redemption. The prophets said, no, 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 no. Yeah, the law is good. Yeah, yes, the law has purpose, but, but the law one day, there's going to be one that comes and he's going to fulfill the law. This is this priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 12, for the priesthood, being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. What tribes were permitted at the altar? The Levites. That's why he keeps saying over and over again, Levi, Levitical, Levi. The tribe of Levi, the descendants of Levi, those were the ones who tended the altar. What tribe was Jesus from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he he can't be of the Levitical priesthood. He can't be of the Old Testament priesthood. Because it's evident, verse 14, it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning Judah. Priesthood. Verse 15, it's yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. There's that once again, just reiterating this prophecy, who is made not after the law, a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Understand that the law of the flesh is not the law whereby Jesus comes, but after the power of an endless life. That's this priesthood. Jesus' priesthood began before the law. And it's going to continue long after. In fact, it continues today. And this is the second way that Jesus is a better high priest. We made it, guys. The second way Jesus is a better high priest. The last two are very close together, I promise. His priesthood's without end. His priesthood's without end. So there's no equal. He's without equal. He's without end. Because his priesthood, there's implications for all of these. Because his priest is without end, he can guarantee his work forever. He can guarantee his work forever. You know, if I were to come to you and say, hey, listen, I know a way, outside of Christ, if I were to come to you and I say, hey, listen, I know a way for you to have eternal life. But I die, what good is that? Right? Does <laughs> that make it, you're like, wait a second, wait a second. That's, Mm, So close, right? But when Jesus says that he can give endless life, who is there to argue that? Because understand, he conquered death. He was dead. He's not. He's ascended. Watch this, verse 17. We're going to continue with this, this theme. For he testified, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he has this power of an endless life. A few years ago, um, I had the chance to go on this trip to, um, to the Middle East. I was in Lebanon for for, a little, for about a week. Um, not a long trip, but um, just really, really incredible trip. And so over there, um, we, went, we had a chance to spend about a half day in um, a town in a city called Byblos. Biblos. Um, and a lot of people um, consider Byblos, uh, they especially make this claim, that it's the longest um, continuously inhabited city in the world. That's the claim that the city makes. There's a few cities kind of vying for this. Byblos um, is home of uh, the Phoenicians, if you're familiar with that term, even vaguely. Um, The first place that we know of having a written language. The first place um, to have an organized navy. Um, Really an impressive city. An impressive city. Um, you don't find a lot of the buildings. Phoenicians were not known to be um, builders in the sense of large castles. Maybe the Egyptians, you think of pyramids, et cetera. The Phoenicians um, were a lot more seafaring, trading, exploring, intellectual. Um, so the oldest, the oldest things that we know where they came from that we saw while we were there um, it's a, a citadel of Byblos is what it's called and it was built during the crusades a group of crusaders came down they built this as a holdfast there on the Mediterranean um, it was just it was fascinating it was built around um, around 11 to 1200 AD um, so you're looking at eight to nine hundred years old um, and you see these towers and it's just impressive that there's even two blocks on top of each other after eight or nine hundred years right Um, A lot of these had fallen over some of the battlements. You could see where one thing or another had caused them to crumble, and they had fallen, even pieces of them kind of jutting out of the Mediterranean. Just really a fantastic sight to behold. Uh, How at one point in time these things were modern and these things were impressive, and now you're just impressed by the fact that they're even still there, right? But it wouldn't do me a lot of good if I were to uh, say, hey, we are going to try to defend this fortress that's now fallen on top of itself. Uh, if, if, if we were to go in there and say, hey, we're going to use this as a base of operations, as a launch point, it's a terrible, it's a terrible fortress today. Why? Because it's in ruins. It's ancient. It's falling apart. Like, you don't even have a roof over your head most of the time. There's, there's nothing there. It's great to look at it as something that once was, but it's, it's outdated. it's it's had its purpose, but it's not what it used to be. Traveling back, um, we were able to, uh, we had a layover in Rome, and it was a long enough layover that we said, hey, how many times are you in Rome, right? And so we uh, jumped on a couple trains, and we went to the Colosseum, and we saw the whole block right there, even even older. The Colosseum was built in the first century. You're looking at 2,000 years old. It was incredible. One of the things you notice about the Colosseum, uh, once you kind of take in and say, wow, they were able to build this, you say, wait a second, it's it's falling apart. Like, there are pieces of it missing, right? You look at it and you're like, I don't think they designed it that way, with, you know, pieces jutting out here and there. And I mean, it's, it's been around for 2,000 years, right? right? You're like, Nate, stop being a critic, 2,000 years old. Yeah, I get that. But if you were to say, hey, we're going to go watch uh, this awesome game and we're going to go to the Coliseum, like, you wouldn't want to actually watch an event there except for maybe the historical significance, but like, not going to be comfortable. It's outdated. It's not modern. They don't do that kind of stuff there anymore. You can get tours that take like 40 minutes, and that's, that's the extent of what people do in the Coliseum anymore. They don't use it for sporting events. Why? Because it's 2,000 years old. It doesn't make any sense. Here's my point. It's outdated. It's the past. It doesn't, it's not fulfilling its usefulness anymore. Now we just look at it and say, wow, it's really old. And that's it. Jesus is a priest forever. The priesthood of Christ doesn't get outdated. The priesthood of Christ doesn't become irrelevant. Doesn't, it's not something that needs to be replaced. It's not something that we, we grow out of. Look at verse number 18. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. It's important to understand. The law made nothing perfect. Nothing was made whole, nothing was made complete under the law because that wasn't the purpose of the law, but watch this. Remember, keyword of the book of Hebrews here. But the bringing in of a better hope did. The bringing in of a better hope did. What's that better hope? It's Christ. It's Jesus. He's the one that's able to make complete. He's the one that's able to make whole, and he's able to keep it that way. Because he doesn't have to deal with the degradation. He doesn't have to deal with uh, time in the same way that we do. As you and I, we age and we grow old, understand our Creator doesn't. In some ways, in many ways, he's probably younger than we are. Because he doesn't have the same infirmities that come from this process. And one day we will be like him. One day we will have glorified bodies. We won't have to endure those things anymore. But understand, he's able to guarantee these things because he's a high priest forever without ending. That's a beautiful thing about the priesthood of Jesus. We have a priesthood that will never end. Watch this, end of 19, by the which we draw nigh unto God. This is how we get to God. This is how we come before him. This is how we are able to enter into his presence. Because we have an advocate, we have a high priest. Before, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, but if you were not a high priest, you dare not enter in. You don't come anywhere close to that. In fact, if you are not a priest, you don't even go into the holy place. And if you're not the high priest, you don't go into the holy of holies. And even the high priest only goes into the holy of holies when it's time to go into the holy of holies. He doesn't say, hmm, I'd like to approach God today. Throw on the ephah and throw on the breastplate and throw on... No, he doesn't do that. That's not how it works. But Jesus, the better high priest and the endless high priest, has made a way for us to get to God through him. And we're not restricted to the Old Testament law. We're not restricted uh, to once a year. We're not restricted to any of those things. In fact, we're able to come boldly before the throne of grace, but it's only because of the work of our great high priest. He's substance where there was once shadow. Verse 20, Inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, this uh, with an oath by him, said and in the Lord, swear, will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. There's a word better again, a better testament. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, all right? Hard to keep being the high priest when you're dead, okay? Um, makes sense if you think about it. Verse 24, this man, because he continueth forever, Jesus, has an unchangeable priesthood, a priesthood that doesn't wear away, doesn't change doesn't get outdated notice that word too it's not an unchanging priesthood like that would be pretty cool and pretty impressive right what does it say an unchangeable priesthood what does that mean it's unable to be changed unable to be done away with one that exists forever and this leads us here into a third final way that jesus is a better high priest jesus priesthood is without limits his priesthood is without limits so, it's without equal. There's no high priest that equals him in his, his character and his being and, and who he is. We're talking about the Son of God here. There's no priesthood that is able to say that it doesn't have an end. Jesus' priesthood is without ending, the second way that it's a better priesthood. Finally, Jesus' priesthood is without limits. It's without limits. And, and understand the implication of this. Because his priesthood is without limits, he can save anyone anywhere. He can save anyone anywhere. Where do we see this? Watch this, verse 25. I love this verse. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. He's able to save them to the uttermost. Maybe some of you have been around church for a while. You've heard that song, Save to the Uttermost. I know that I am, right? If you ever wondered where that came from, Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus, the great high priest, is able to save to the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. What does it mean to the uttermost? It means fully. It means to completion. It means nothing <coughs> is left undone. There's no limitations. There's no reserves. <clears throat> he can save anyone anywhere. He can save, he can save whosoever. There's nobody that exists that he's incapable of saving. And you know what? That's, that's good news because if there was someone that he couldn't save, that someone would be all of us. What do we say about our sin initially? We said this. We said What? The, the, the wicked, the evil of every human heart, that's the same sin that's inside of us. We can try to moralize it and justify it and say, I'm better than that person because I've not done that thing. Hey, listen, understand, when we say sin is inside of you and you're a slave to sin, by the grace of God, you're not that person. By the grace of God, you're not in the situation that that person is in. The same wicked, the same evil lives in your heart. The same wicked, the same evil is in your flesh, outside of Christ. But what's he able to do? He's able to save. He's able to save to the uttermost, to rescue from this sin. And understand that because of his death on the cross, because of the work that Jesus has done, he's able to save you. He's able to save you through that perfect offering, that perfect sacrifice. And this is not even just a matter of what he had done, but this is a matter of what he is continuing to do. Watch this verse as it continues. Look at verse 25, second half here. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's able to save to completion because he hasn't stopped doing his work. He continues in his work. And even today, he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. You know what that means? It means this it means Jesus is praying for you, Jesus is going before the Father on your behalf. You're not in this fight alone. There's nothing, that, there's nothing that you have going on that he doesn't know about and that he is not going to God on your behalf for. You see, as we go through times that are, that are dark and as we go through times that are discouraging, as we go through times that just they break our hearts and they devastate us, they cause us to, to lose our way, you understand we are not forgotten by our Savior. He ever lives to make intercession for those who have come to God through him. As he has saved you to the uttermost, that work is continuing work. That work is not a work that is just done and he said, oh yeah, you're saved. I'm clocking out now. No, he continues on your behalf to intercede. You see, this is a high priest that has no, he has no limits. He doesn't punch out at the end of the day. He doesn't say, wow, they really messed up that time. I can't get to them there. That's not who he is. That's not how he is. He is a high priest that goes above and beyond. He can save to the uttermost. And understand this, that when he intercedes, he doesn't intercede based on you and your own goodness. He intercedes based on his righteousness. He doesn't stand there and say, God, they're really a good person if you look deep down inside of them. Which is probably good, because if we look deep down inside of all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, yeah, good person, Right. Whose righteousness does he go to God with? It's with his righteousness. He said, I, I, I've paid for that. Forgiven, they're forgiven. Oh, man, yeah. Yes, Miles did that dumb thing. But he's forgiven. <laughs> but he's forgiven. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, they messed up that. They, they sinned. Yes, I know, and it breaks my heart too, but, but they're forgiven. I died for that. I paid for that. He intercedes on your behalf. He's not forgotten you. He's continuing to represent you before the Father. And watch this. For such a high priest. Oh, this is beautiful. Verse 26. For such a high priest became us. He became us. He wasn't like you initially. What did he? He became. He took on flesh. He became us. Who is holy. That means he's without sin. He's without flaw, fault, need. He's harmless means innocent, without, without the ability to cause harm. He's undefiled. It means he's stainless, unsullied, free from sin, from blemishes. Separate from sinners. And this doesn't mean separate in that he is uh, distancing himself from. This means that he's made of different stuff. He doesn't face temptation the way that we face temptation. Surely he was tempted, but he's without sin. As you and I were, were slaves to sin, he's defeated sin. He's conquered it. He's brought it into submission. He's made higher than the heavens. Verse 27 Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice. Remember, first for his own sins, then for the people's sin problem, right? For this he did once when he offered up himself. Understand that. We don't sacrifice animals today, we don't sacrifice, like, the blood of goats or of lambs to an offering. We don't see a priest for these things and continue to have to perform penance and to continue to have to earn God's graces. Why? Because once for all, the, the payment was made. Once for all, the salvation was offered. There's no need for, a, for day after day the sins to be forgiven and be forgiven and be forgiven and again. They were forgiven and they are forgiven. When you trust Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. Confession and confession has a a different role within our church for healing, for growth, for overcoming sin. But understand this, understand this. Jesus paid for your sin once for all. Jesus died for your sin once for all. There's no need for him to climb back up on that cross because, oh man, you know what? I didn't pay quite enough. No, it's sufficient. It's complete. It's whole. It's enough. When he offered up himself. The Levitical priesthood needed sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And they'd have to go with a sacrifice for themselves because it wasn't enough to have a sacrifice for just for the people because their own sins needed to be remitted. But these things are just a, a shadow where Jesus is the substance. These things pointed to him and he, he fulfilled these things. He's the one that all of these things, all the promises of God, Colossians, Paul writes, all the promises of God are yes in him. Everything that God said these would one day come to pass in Jesus, he has made these promises true. He has fulfilled these things. So, if we wrap up tonight, we have a better high priest. We have a better high priest. How, How can we know this? Because he's without equal, he can succeed where others have failed, he's without equal which means he can succeed where others have failed, where you have failed, where you sought for worth and you sought for validation and you sought for all of these things that you can cover yourselves with so that you can have some reason to be able to come to God and where you can try to build yourself up so you can make yourself feel valuable even just for a minute as we take our sins and we shove them into the corners. No, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come to me. Come to me. He's without equal. He can, he can step in. Where you failed. He's the one that you can go to and you can find love and you can find significance and you can find safety and security. You can find these things in him. In him, the great high priest. He's without equal. He's without ending. Because he's without ending, he can guarantee this promise forever. His priesthood is forever. His priesthood doesn't come to know. We we don't have to worry about this deal running out. We don't have to worry about somehow someone's going to realize that we got off with this. There's no limitations, there's no finality, there's no timetable in which it ends into the age of the ages forever. Amen. Okay? It's forever. His priesthood's without end. And his priesthood's without limits because if it's without limits, he can save anyone anywhere. Thank God for that because that means he can save you and me. If you couldn't save anyone anywhere, we're doomed. This priesthood is without end. It means this, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever things your heart has imagined, uh, whatever happened uh, through your life, there's no place, there's no sin, there's no darkness, there's no thought that he has not overcome. There's nothing that's happened that you say, God, this is too much for Christ. Because if the things that you've done are too much for him, the things that I've done are too much for him too. If the things that you've done are too much for him, so the person beside you, it's too much for him too. It's too much for her too. If God can't save one of us, God can't save any of us. Understand, we have a great high priest because he's without equal, he's without ending, he's without limits. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you.